Dadhood. Modern Dadhood Podcast. Right on the money. Episode 29? 28? 29? Are we up to 30? Episode 29. Wouldn't you know it? You're right. <laughs> Why don't you take it this time? Holy hell. Welcome back, everyone. This is Modern Dadhood, an ongoing conversation about the joys, challenges, and general insanity of being a dad in this moment. My name is Mark Checkett. I'm a dad of twin boy toddlers. Two and a half at this. We're going we, halves. We decided last time we're going halves. Adam, who are you? Well, you... Uh, <laughs> I gave part of it away. Yes, and my name is Adam Flaherty. I'm a father of two daughters who are six and a half and three and a half. Well, Modern Dadhood is a conversation show. It's not an interview. It's not a Q&A, typically, right? Sometimes. You yeah. like have authentic, genuine conversations with other dads and occasionally moms, as evidenced by our last episode with Courtney. Yeah, perfect. And uh, today's episode, I am certain, is going to be a really solid conversation. You want to share who the guest is today? No. I'll go ahead and tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think today is going to be a pretty fun conversation because we are welcoming an author and illustrator by the name of John Clausen, who some of our listeners might recognize better as the guy that made the book, I Want My Hat Back. I Want My Hat Back. Three books in the hat series, as it's become known. I Want My Hat Back. We Found a Hat. This is not my hat. Also a trilogy of shape books. Yes, a trilogy of shape books that he worked with Mac Barnett on. Solid collaboration. Yeah, also a name that, that some of our listeners might uh, find familiar. I'm excited to chat with John. He'll be joining us shortly. Me too. On our Zoom. Me too. Mark, I know that we both share the philosophy of trying to limit screen time to some extent. Hmm. But I'm curious to know if there are any shows or movies in particular that your boys are really into right now. Um, yes, there are, there are a couple. And thankfully one of them is a show that I also really love. I think it's a Netflix. No, I'm sure it is. It's a Netflix show called go, go Corey Carson. Oh, I've never even come across it on oh, Netflix. It's wonderful. Um, it's very, first of all, it's very funny. Like the, the writing in it is really well crafted and I find myself entertained and oftentimes kind of laughing it out loud. I mean, I'm in, I'm sort of in that mode if I'm sitting down with the kids watching that show. Cause you mean you're high? Huh? Yeah. You're <laughs> You'll laugh at almost anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm just so stoned. Just Come sinking on, kids. into the couch. Let's get high and watch Go Go Corey Carson, man. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in that mode where like I'm invested in what's coming out of the TV screen so that it's not just the three of us sitting with just blank, unblinking stares, you know. But it's, it's, it's all about a town in which these Car, all the characters are cars or some type of vehicle. There's some trains and big cement mixers and things like that. But one of the reasons why I love it is that they're tapping into the nostalgia of 
like the sitcoms from shows that maybe you and I used to watch when we were we were a little bit younger. One of the things that I've picked up on is all the TVs in all of the the houses are big old like console tube television <laughs> are they four TVs. by three yeah they're they're like enormous sit yeah. on the floor they're a giant piece of furniture and i just thought that was a really interesting creative choice and the houses are all kind of warmly lit as opposed to maybe like today's led bright daylight type lighting mm-hmm. um, and it just kind of captures that like the house is a character in the show much like Family Matters or like Step by Step or whatever, any of those shows that you could still kind of close your eyes and picture the living rooms of. Um, And so, I don't know, it's like a little extra special treat for me. And that's got to be an intentional move by the creators, right? By the artists and and the creators and the writers uh, to keep parents interested in that. Yeah. My girls, you know, six and a half and three and a half, watch some really great shows like what you're describing and they also watch some real garbage. You know, they're just drawn to um, some shows that just the story is so weak and they're just so thoughtless. I mean, we've talked about this before when it comes to music, you know. Yeah. We've been watching a lot of a show called Bluey on Disney+. Plus. I do remember you mentioning that show to me in the past and it's on my list to check out and I still haven't. It's about a family of dogs. It is it, the episodes are short, which is mm. nice. They're seven or eight minutes long, but they pack a lot into that amount of time. But it also doesn't feel, you know, overwhelming sensory overload. Um, the pace is good. The characters are great. The parents are realistic. You know, the dad is a hilarious character and there's so much that parents can get out of it. And the kids are so entertained by it, too. We love Bluey. We just find that recommendations from people who we trust who have similar senses of humor and similar parenting philosophies usually result in quickly finding the best content to share with our kids. Our mutual friend Dan Snyder actually turned me on to Bluey and, you know, case in point, even this conversation, I mean, you just recommended the awesome Netflix show that I've already forgotten the name of. Go, go Corey Carson. We'll put it there in the show go. notes. <laughs> But now I can go check that out and trust that it's going to be good. Well, yeah. And I mean, sometimes that content or that the substance, the really good quality part of whatever it is you're ingesting, book, movie, show, whatever, sometimes it does take more than an instant for it to sink in and for you to realize what's good or what's interesting or what's fun about it. And I think there is a lot of stuff out there all up and down the board, like kids shows all the way up to, you know, huge money making blockbuster movies where the story is at the core of it and everything is there to serve the story. And sometimes the story is very obviously it doesn't matter. You know, right. I mean, I, not to take you know shots at a, an easy target, but like a Michael Bay movie. The story is secondary, tertiary. Exactly. But that's not why you go see those movies, right? You go see those movies to just just for the assault on your eyeballs, you know? Right. It's just the adrenaline a, a, rush. Dre- yeah, yeah, exactly. Explosions and hero shot after hero shot. And, you know, that's an awesome car. Oh, cool. There's the logo in front of me. Now I know exactly what car it is, you know? I mean, it's just, it's for all of that, that stuff. I guess I feel like we do our best to try to sway our girls away from either watching or reading books or shows or movies that we just feel are like devoid of 
any real substance because mm-hmm. we want them to learn to be able to decipher the difference. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm realizing that's sort of a conflict because if we're de- depriving them of the really bad stuff without allowing them to watch it and then saying, mm-hmm. hey, like, even though the colors were bright and the characters had like funny voices, that that show is awful. Yeah. I guess I'm just thinking about how to nurture an appreciation for books or movies or shows that expand their imagination rather than content with no substance that's like clearly made solely to cash in on things that kids are supposed to like. And that's sort of a catch 22, right? Because that also doesn't mean that it has to be super complex or even designed to be educational. I don't, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I still, I find myself still like if I, I have a list of movies on my phone that when I hear about them or when I hear somebody that talk about them, it sounds interesting. I write it down and then I look up, I look up stuff about it and I, I do the same with kids books. I mean, I, if I find an author that I like, I look into them and then I see what other work that they've done or like with our guest today, who they've collaborated with. In John's case, we know him and we're talking about his children's books, but he was an animator for some films before in a previous life, you know, and just getting to learn, you know, little things like that to me are all really play an important role in whether or not I'm going to take in a book that he's he's written. Um, I'm not saying everybody should go to that that length, but I do hope for my own kids anyway, that they are curious enough to really think about what they're ingesting mark he's here our guest is here i'm excited i can see him right now (laughs) i know you've been excited for this i have too our guest is a dad of two young boys he also happens to be a number one new york times best-selling author and a winner of multiple awards including the coveted Caldecott Medal for his phenomenal illustration work. Today, we welcome John Clausen to the show. Welcome to Modern Dadhood, sir. Hi. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's cool to be on. Well, thanks for making time for us. How are you doing? Doing, I mean, you know, it's all with a masterix these days, but not bad, <laughs> all things considered. Uh, I think that people who work in picture book stuff kind of got a better deal on this one because we're used to being in our houses anyway. All of the quirks that go with working at home were old already. So we would love to hear a little bit about your family. You've got a couple of young people who run around your house. Yeah, we've got a a three and a half year old named Isaac and a one and a half year old named August. Great names. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, August is Augie, which we didn't (sighs) expect, but um, I, I was really a big fan of Gus and I think that's hopefully what he'll grow into, but we'll see how it all goes. I Mm. don't know. Augie's working out pretty well so far. That's Chris Ballou's son's name, isn't it? It is. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't know if he's an August or an Augustus or just Augie, but uh, anyway, John, uh, Mark and I have been discussing how there's a lot of really great books out there that are made for kids and that can be enjoyed by adults too. But there's so much content out there, especially now living in this age where you can so easily self-publish and (laughs) have a tangible thing that feels very legitimate. It becomes hard to parse through all that stuff and figure out what is a book of substance versus what isn't. In my particular case, we came across I Want My Hat Back because my mother-in-law a few years ago, Chris, was with our daughter, who's now six and a half and was probably three or four at the time. 
And she brought it back from the library in a stack of books. And I was reading to my daughter and picked up that book and read it to her. And I was like, oh, my God, this <laughs> this is awesome. This is different than all of the other books in this pile and probably all the other books on her bookshelf. The writing is so simple. The art is so clever. Can you talk to us a little bit about your process, maybe starting with the illustration process and then speak to the writing? Yeah, I, well, my whole trajectory, I came from animation. I went to school for animation and worked at the studios for about six or seven years um, before I started getting into books. I was working in feature movies, mostly as a designer. And when you're working on those movies as a designer, your work almost has to look like a still from the film. You have to light it and it has to suggest whole worlds outside of the frame. You know, you're, you're doing these big elaborate ideas and designs. And as soon as I got the book gigs on the side, my whole reaction was to clean it up as much as possible. I wanted the simplest thing that was going to hold still and be composed to the page. The camera was never going to move to the left or cut off my weird thing. I had so much control and I just wanted something so clean and, and readable across the room instead of all these small little details that went into these movies. That's how my illustration stuff sort of got going. I've also never uh, loved drawing very much. I like storytelling, but I was never... You see some illustrators and even people in animation who draw a lot just as a muscular reaction. You'll be at dinner and there's a napkin or you'll be somewhere and they just want to be drawing and that's how they sort of relax even. And that's the reverse for me is I don't relax when I'm drawing. It's really tense and hard. And so I try to give myself as little to draw as possible so I don't screw it up. And in the books and the writing, just in the feel of those books, generally the hat ones, especially because those are the first ones I did by myself, there's so much self-protection going on in terms of how little I want to put on the page because there's just so much less ways to screw up. <laughs> mm -hmm. My approach to book illustration was that you're choosing a moment either before or after an action because choosing a still frame in the middle of an action isn't really a great use of the form. It seems like it's much more fun to choose the moment either before the thing happened. And so most of my books are just characters standing still before they're about to do something. I'm not sure I would have thought of it that way if I hadn't worked in film for so long and wanted that contrast to things moving all the time versus things standing still. But it leads to an aesthetic. I think that a lot of my ideas are hinged on the idea of my characters being allowed to stand still a lot. And so all of that goes into the look of the book and the feeling of the book. And my decisions about typefaces and colors are all pretty subdued because I just want the thing to stand still. I just want it to be quiet, at least visually. But then to give yourself permission to do it quietly, visually, I think, or at least I thought that you need to turn it up story-wise. So you have these characters just standing still saying virtually nothing, but the story is about murder and revenge and theft and death. <laughs> and it's like, those two things have to contrast. I got to buy permission to have my boring looking book by having like an opera happen alongside it. Adam and I were just talking yesterday. Both of us had the same reaction to the eyes of the characters that you mm. create. And there's so much going on. I mean, you talk about like they are, they're just, they're just still on the page. They're not moving, but there's so much happening with just the eyes of the characters and the very subtle nuance, you know, differences between the eyes being all the way open or being squinting just a tiny little bit. Mm -hmm. And I just, I wonder, was that something that was a very conscious decision or is, did you just gravitate towards, like, how did you come upon that as a device, I guess? I think it is, it's the same thing as sort of the idea of the opera story versus the quiet composition is that you need to get permission to have your characters standing still. And so something has to be going on for the kid to gravitate to and to connect with. You can't just be looking at 
unless you really do your work, there's some great stories that involve like just a rock <laughs> on the ground, but you have to build that. You have to build permission for that to be a page in your book. What I like about eyes so much is that they're symbols, right? They are you're, the smallest movement of like a pupil inside just a, an oval. I don't sort of give myself high grade for nuance in drawing the eyes so much as it is if we clear the way, if the drawing is clean and you're able to recognize that small movement, then you just have to think about you know, what you do with your eyes rather than how well can I draw this particular thing. Mm. What I kind of wonder about is whether your approach to the work has changed at all, specifically like on the advent of becoming a dad. And you know, now, you, now you have these beings in your life yeah. who are also potential future consumers of your craft, <laughs> right? But I just, I wonder That's why if you make them, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I wonder if your like approach mentally or otherwise has shifted at all since then. I think so. I think I can feel it. It was already getting gentler, I think. But it's all, it does both things because you see, like you want to be gentler because you feel gentle towards your kids, at least most of the time. But then you also see what they're capable of taking in and how much they want to challenge themselves and how they like being scared about certain things. And so you're kind of moving both directions at the same time where you're like, oh boy, I don't want to put anything out that's going to be over their heads or alienate them. But then at the same time, they want to hear about the one about the, where the guy's head gets cut off. And so you're like, oh, well, maybe <laughs> they do want to hear all this stuff. And maybe we can go actually even weirder than I thought. And I don't know where that lands. I think that you probably treat it project to project instead of trying to land all that stuff in one book. The other thing is that I've got into this work a lot long time before I was a dad. And I think that you get into the habit, even if you have kids, I think that mostly I talk to myself as a third grader rather than ask the kids questions or think about a certain kid that I, I didn't really have access to a lot of kids when I started this. We were just hanging out with our friends and stuff. But if I thought about a certain audience member, a lot of the times it was me as a young kid. And you're so used to talking to him. Once you have access to him and you, you understand what that conversation is like, I still think you go there pretty often. And you even go there more often because now you're seeing, like, these are two little boys. They're a lot like me, at least so far. I see a lot of myself in them. And so it reminds you even more about little moments that you'd forgotten about or things in your own childhood that you were like, oh, that's right. I used to get really into that. And I was so focused. You see the amount of focus they put into certain weird parts of their day and the speed of that, the speed of your brain in a moment or looking at a story or playing with a toy, you remember how weirdly focused you were on certain parts of a story or a book that you remember. And so I think it gives you more energy for the importance of your work because they really do love these books and they look at, not necessarily mine, but books generally, the ones that they love, you're like, oh yeah, this is important work. And that's been really nice too, is that because you can dissuade yourself of that pretty easily. No one's asking me to make these books. I don't, if I stop tomorrow, nothing would stop in the world. And so you wonder a lot about, you know, how necessary is this work that I'm doing, but looking at your kids, loving these books and them being really important to them, that's been a lot of gas in the tank. Um, so it hasn't changed the work that much practically, but it changes your headspace around how you feel about it, I guess. A lot of the books that we have, or even just the TV shows that, my, that we let our girls watch, they come through, you know, recommendations from people. Because as we've been speaking about, there's so much to parse through. Yeah. We've read so many books that just feel like they are devoid of any real, <laughs> any real meaningful content. Yeah. So much of what we put in front of them is based on recommendations from other people. So I would love to hear from you. What children's authors are you into? Is there anybody that particularly inspires your own 
writing and art. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, although I try more and more not to look too hard at, especially the current stuff coming out, just because it can really throw you for a loop and you end up sort of feeling either competitive in a weird way you weren't before, or just like thinking about market directions and that's not in your business. Um, and so the newer stuff that I've gotten into, we have a set of books that Enchanted Lion puts out and Enchanted Lion is a publisher out of Brooklyn and basically anything they put out is worth looking at. They're really good, but they have a series of books called Cheery and Chira. I think they, they were brought over from Japan, but the books are almost about nothing. They're about these little girls who go for bike rides in like a stand of grass. And then all of a sudden they're very small and they run into animals who are making like different kinds of berry tea or something. And then they have a concert in the grass and then they just, that's, they don't even go home at the end, which is really interesting. Wow. They just kind of, they, I, there's usually like some sort of animal hotel they stay in overnight or something. And I think you're supposed to generally think this is some sort of an imagination trip on their part, but it doesn't ever bring that back around. It doesn't ever say so explicitly or even land it at the end. It's just these weird sensory dreams that are so engaging. And there's so much outside of how we think about storytelling, I think, especially like in, in States. Older ones I still go back to that hold up like crazy are all the William Stieg books. He wrote Shrek, which is what he's known for, which is too bad because the Shrek movies aren't anything like his books. His picture books and his novels. He's written three, two or three novels. Uh, the novels are fantastic, um, but the picture books are also really, really good. My favorite book, probably my favorite picture book is Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. And that's the one I was talking about actually with a rock because it's about a donkey who finds a magic pebble and sees a lion almost right away and panics and wishes he was a rock. And he gets turned into a rock. And of course the pebble drops in the ground and now the donkey's a rock and has no way to not be a rock. Um, and so it's about, but he has parents. He's like a young donkey and his parents don't know where he went. And they spend, it's at least a year. He goes through a cycle of seasons and the book becomes about grief. It becomes about the parents' grief at wow. losing this child. And you, you break down over it, especially as a parent reading it. But the storytelling is so gorgeous and the writing is so beautiful. His writing is nothing like mine, which I think that's why I like reading him is because he's so naturalistic as a writer. He just, you can tell he just wrote and it just kind of came out of him. He wasn't thinking and parsing these things. And then um, Arnold Lobel, who does the Frog and Toad books, those have been in the news, I guess, mm. a lot lately, because he's actually been revisited for a while. No one read his stuff, I think, for a little bit, but then all of a sudden he's gotten a resurgence and it's worth it. He's, he's one of the best to ever do it. The Frog and Toad books, I think, are unmatched. They're beautifully done and really deep. That particular reference, Frog and Toad, that inspiration seems to be present in your work, both in the art and in the writing to some extent, at least in it, it's sort of introducing kids to human psychology to an extent, you know, <laughs> thinking about that stuff, because yeah. there's some of those same elements in your writing. You know, you're thinking about the dynamics between the characters and issues of trust and truth versus lying and and all of that stuff. There's something really interesting about giving kids the space to come to a conclusion on their own because kids can have such a wild imagination or like a really pure sense of like wonder about the world and the things that they're taking in. And it kind of bugs me sometimes when I see a story or a book or a movie or so that just does a, that goes to great lengths to sort of do everything for the viewer, you know, or over explain. Yeah. I think what it makes me think of is the intention of the book to begin with and what my experience of picture books was growing up, because we didn't have a lot of picture books in the house growing up. My memories of them are when we went to my grandparents' house and um, they still had my dad's room basically intact, not out of a way of, of sort of 
weird preservationist memory, but just they hadn't changed it. And they had this big wall of National Geographic's and book club books against his back wall. And so I would sleep in that room and I would basically, when the door was closed, I would have run of the place in that room. And I just remembered most of the book club books were the Dr. Zeus ones or the, um, that club, there was PD Eastman and all these guys in there, but they were all the same trim size and they were all cardboard bound things. And I would just take like seven of them onto the bed and just pour over them by myself on the bed. Hmm. Like I can remember being read to, but I have more memories of reading to myself or looking at the books. And I think that probably my books are better suited to a solitary experience Hmm. where the kid is looking at it and the silent spreads really are silent. But yeah, I I kind of, I go back and forth because I have a habit of wordless spreads for things I don't know what to say over. And I can, I don't, I'm not sure it doesn't the parent or the teacher any favors when they're reading it to a group. So I can understand both sides of that. And I've certainly been in that trap too, especially now with kids where I do, I read them much more energetically than I would before I had kids. Cause now I understand that like you want to engage them, you know, you want to be there with them and make them excited about the thing they're reading that they might not get yet. Right, right, right. Exactly. It's a beautiful thing to have those moments when you can entertain them by bringing a character to life or use the story as an opportunity to teach them something. But to echo what you both have been saying, it's, it's arguably, you know, equally valuable to them to be able to discover the whole thing on their own and find their, their own takeaways and come to their own conclusions. Well, and really realize that those conclusions are valid. Like not right. even just be like, that isn't that cute. You have right. a little conclusion. Like to really say like, that is as valid as a conclusion as I've come to today on anything I've been thinking about. Like his day is as real as my day. And to really believe that mm-hmm. you have to understand how real those days are for you when you're four years old and that you are a true complete person already, or that you're never a complete person. One of those two things, both that can be true, I guess. I think it took having kids to really clarify that for me, just watching their days and be like, holy shit, they're real days. He had a whole day today and he didn't even leave the house, but it was a whole day. And like, just how, like that, that world seems so small, but that it's a totally valid one. It's such a, man, it's a heartbreaking thing. It's interesting too, because as you grow and change as a person, right? If you came back to that book 20 years from now, yeah, would you interpret parts of it very differently because of where you are in your life. Yeah. And I, I wonder like if you're a two and a half year old reading, I want my hat back. And at the end you're happy because the bear gets his hat back and that's, <laughs> that, that's how you leave the book. But when yes. you're four and five yes. and six years old, you learn a little bit more about the world and then you bring that into the reading of the book. Does the perspective change? I think that's, that's the important part about those books and why I think I'm I'm, I'm proud of those books for that reason is because they have a visual ending as much as a, as a plot ending. It's like, if you are very young, if the title of the book is I want my hat back, all you really want out of that book is for that character to be wearing a hat again. And you're not really going to understand a lot of the nuance of it maybe, but you have the visual satisfaction of a hat being back on that bear. Mm -hmm. And that's important. That's, that's, that's a feeling of closure and finality to the story. And I think that we, we got very lucky with that one because it really does run the age gamut. We can read it to toddlers and we can read it to second graders and we can read it to eighth graders. And they're all kind of laughing at different parts of it. <laughs> but it does, I really like that about it is that it has a visual premise and ending as much as it has an emotional one. I'm going to say something potentially controversial. Is everybody in the room, is everybody in the room ready for this? I'm going to go on yeah, record we're ready. Here. Drop it. I don't think Goodnight Moon is a very good book. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now, now discuss. I don't know enough about Margaret Wise's Brown's deal and, um, and Clement Hurd who illustrated it. I don't, they were into something else that I don't have access to. I, I, there is, for me, there's a bit of a block with that one too, 
my friend Mac, who writes a lot of books I illustrate, is a big Margaret Wise Brownhead, and he wrote a book about her and everything. And he understands so much more about rhythm and what's going on rhythmically with her text in that book. It's a whole other thing that's not apparent to naked eyes. And it's why apparently that book works, is that there's some sort of cocaine sprinkled in the rhythm of that book. Um, but apparently Margaret Wise Brown is really a, a master at rhythm and line breaks and stuff. And that's, what's, that's apparently what's going on in that book. I just think it's interesting because that particular book, I kind of feel like there's a lot of books that rise to the, that, that rise to the top as being like quintessential children's book. You got to have this. Oh, you, oh, you're, oh, right, you're pregnant. Right. I'm going to buy you Goodnight moon because yes. you have to have it on yes. your shelf. And I yeah. definitely think there are some books out there that deserve that. And I just, I haven't found it yet with <laughs> Goodnight moon. Maybe I need Mac to sit me down and, and walk me through it, you know? John, what's next for you? You mentioned your new book, The Rock from the Sky, comes out sometime in the spring. It comes out in the spring. Yeah, we'll see what the world looks like. <laughs> um, I wrote it a couple, I wrote it like last, well, it's been being written over the last little while, but it right, reading it now, it does seem to fit the moment a little bit. It's about impending doom and dramatic irony, I guess. And just, But it's five short stories, but all the premises are like even dumber than I would have thought before and like almost the dumber I could make them, the more fun I was having. That's awesome. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to see it. I'm sure fans of the hat trilogy and the other work that you've done are also really excited to see it. Of course, parents listening can find your work on Amazon, but I would imagine that you probably prefer people to purchase through independent bookstores. Is there anywhere particular that you like to recommend? I mean, Powell's in Portland is a good one. Powell's ships all over the place, but you can find your local indie. They're probably having a bad year. If you're interested in my books or books like that, we would not survive without the indies. Please go to them. Here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, there's a great independent bookstore called River Run Books. There's Water Street Books in Exeter. Uh, up in Portland, there's Longfellow Books and so, so many more. Uh, we'll put a bunch of links in our show notes, and we encourage dads and moms listening to find and support your local shop. John, uh, where can people follow what you're up to? I'm on Instagram and Twitter doing the usual stuff. It's where I post anything that is new or coming out. So if you're interested, then that's where I am. John Clausen, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Modern Dadhood. Best of luck to your family, your two boys, Isaac and August. We hope everybody stays safe and healthy and look forward to, to the new book coming in the spring. Thanks for spending so much time with us, man. Thank you very, very much for having me. This is great. Okay, Mark, here's what we're going to do. Rapid fire. We're going to share some books that we like and books that we don't like. Go. All right. Here we are. Notes for Living on Planet Earth by Oliver Jeffers. It's smart, sciencey. The illustration is beautiful and quirky. And there's so much subtle detail you can spend an hour just staring at one page. And sometimes we do. Good book. I love you recommend. One Morning in Maine by Robert McCloskey. Simple, timeless writing, beautiful pencil illustration, a classic for good reason. Good book! Yay! The bright and early board books version of the Thomas and Friends stories. Lazy writing, weak lessons, and sometimes the illustrations look like they're pieced together from other stories. Try harder. Black book, I do not recommend. K. Thompson's Eloise. Way too long. It always seems like a great bedtime book until you get into it and remember how obnoxiously long and repetitive it is. Boo! 
That's a bad book. Toot by Leslie Patricelli. Lovable and relatable characters get a simple and funny premise. It's about farting. Plus, you're learning something valuable along the way. Good book. Good book. A Sick Day for Amos McGee by Philip and Aaron Stead. It's just such a cool story about trust and friendship and loyalty. And don't tell anyone, but at some point I'm going to approach them about turning it into a screenplay that I can direct. We highly recommend it. Daddy, you told them. On the Night You Were Born by Nancy Tillman. Hey, the 90s called, and it wants its digital collage work back. Also, call me a skeptic, but I don't think we are all as special and unique as this book would have you believe. All, all Barbie books. No author noted. Nobody will even fess up to writing them. They're shallow, uninspired, despicable. A waste of $4.99, which is a surprise to nobody. Bad book. I actually kind of like those. Bob the Artist by Marianne Duchar. The moral of this story is wonderful. A combination of simple language and whimsical illustration makes it easy for even my two-and-a-half-year-olds to memorize. Plus, you get to dip your toe into the world of modern art. Good book. I only recommend. Katie Hudson, Too Many Carrots. Admittedly, I like this one for the illustration and the layout of the words on the pages as much as I like it for the story, but Katie Hudson's books are well worth exploring. Spots Thanksgiving by Eric Hill. Look, I can't speak to the rest of the series, but this book is unimaginative at best. There's almost no story. Also, dogs can't bake. Get your facts straight. But, but, Give the Dog a Bone by Stephen Kellogg. Now, this is a play on the old nursery rhyme, This Old Man, but it's scattered. There's too much going on. It's overwhelming to me. And I have a hard time singing along with it. I want to sing with it. So while I'm sure you're a great guy, Stephen, I I can't in good conscience recommend this. Sorry. Here we are again at the closing of the episode. This is the end. Beautiful and great. Now we're going to get copyright infringement. Is that a real tune? Who was that? Yeah, that was The Doors. You couldn't tell by my... Oh, I, no, I couldn't. I didn't know that was your Morrison. Sorry, yeah, it wasn't good. That's why. I should have recognized it. Dads, you can find us at moderndadhood.com on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, and more. Please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, it would make a big difference for us. And if you would take a minute or two to give us a rating and review um, and tell your mom friends and dad friends about us, all of those are great ways to help us spread the word about modern dadhood. Yeah. And you can drop us a line at hey, H-E-Y, at moderndadhood.com. Motherfucker. <clears throat> hey, H-E-Y, at moderndadhood.com. Tell us what you like about the show. Tell us never to do a a Jim Morrison impression again, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks as always to Casper Baby Pants and Spencer Albee for our modern dadhood music and to our friend Pete Morse. His nickname is uh, Ears. Ears. (laughs) I've never called him that and I won't. (laughs) Thank you to Pete Morse at Red Vault Audio who you can find at redvaultaudio.com for making us sound good. Thank you, Pete. For his ears. Oh, Thank you to Miles Kruzberg Rosine, the Modern Dadhood intern. And thank you 
so much for listening. <laughs>